Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the Minnesota March food drive is underway, the U of M takes the lead on a unique new Supreme Court project, and Gopher football coach P.J. Fleck. But first... Preventing gun violence, particularly in schools, took center stage again this week at the Minnesota Capitol. MNN's Bill Werner is here with a recap of that, plus other high-profile issues that took the stage in St. Paul. Scott, Republicans opened this week's debate, rolling out a bill in the Minnesota House which would allow schools to use their existing maintenance revenue funds to upgrade security. Sponsor Eden Prairie Republican Jennifer Loon indicates state bonding money or an appropriation from the budget are also options. My number one goal is making sure that schools have what they need to do the best they can to, again, make sure that our schools are safe. Loon said the money could be used not only for security upgrades, but also for counseling for students with mental health issues. We want to make sure that we're taking an all-encompassing approach to providing a safe and nurturing environment for our children at school. House Democratic leader Melissa Hortman said the bill does nothing to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people, and she says fortifying Minnesota schools won't prevent the next shooting. Another major proposal midweek. We aren't stopping until thoughts are replaced with action and prayers replaced with laws. St. Louis Park High School junior Eva Goldfarb showing her support as Governor Mark Dayton unveiled his proposal this week to combat gun violence. The first part, which Republicans and Democrats will probably be able to agree on in some fashion, would provide $16 million from the state's budget surplus to improve security in Minnesota schools, plus an additional $5 million for mental health services for students who need extra support. The governor says... One failure is catastrophic. We have a, a big task to try to identify people before they commit these terrible acts and, and get them the help they need. Education Minnesota Teachers Union President Denise Speck says the governor's plan does not go far enough to keep kids safe and, quote, too many educators will still wonder if tomorrow is the day they step between a student and an AR-15. The governor will have a much tougher time at the Republican-controlled legislature with part two of his anti-gun violence proposal. He wants criminal background checks for all firearm sales, prohibiting sale of assault weapons to anyone under age 21, and allowing judges to temporarily suspend access to firearms if a person is a threat to themselves or others. Dayton says about opponents... They don't even want to talk about it, much less act on it, which is really shameful. Gun rights advocates say data show background checks do nothing to deter mass shootings. They say trained armed teachers are the best way to stop perpetrators, but the governor says he opposes any expansion of current law which allows concealed carry in schools under some circumstances. And ratcheting up the debate this week... About 2,000 students walked out of class. A crowd estimated at 5,000 converged on the state capitol, demanding legislators change Minnesota's gun laws. I just want them to know that we don't feel safe in like our schools or in our environment. That it's just not right for us to be like feel like we could be killed at any second. I think that these are the folks who are they're going to get it done and they're going to hold us all accountable, and they should. And I'm so excited and uh, just cheering them on. As Democratic Representative Peggy Flanagan from St. Louis Park. Bridget, a student at Central High School, says... We want more restrictions on gun control and, you know, ban possibly, like, assault rifles because I personally don't believe that anyone needs one. Um, So I think it's really important that we have less guns in our country. 
Those weapons that serve nothing but to kill people do not have a positive, positive place in our society, and that's something that just does not belong here. Jacob, a student at the Academy of Holy Angels in Richfield, Creton Durham Hall student Will Dusek echoes. It is not okay for somebody that's 18 to walk in with a couple thousand dollars and just a license and ID and walk out with a fully automatic assault rifle. That's not okay, and that should not be happening in this country. A lone gun rights advocate perched on a snowbank as students walked from the Capitol across the street to the state office building. He took some snowball hits. They're allowed to have their own opinion. I don't agree with it. But uh, obviously they have more people than I do. Also this week at the Capitol, House Republicans moved forward with a bill that would give Governor Mark Dayton the $10 million he wants to continue fixing the state's troubled vehicle registration system, Minlars. But Dayton would have to take the money out of other state agencies' budgets. That's not a solution. That's just batting the problem around. I'm not going to cannibalize the rest of state government for this. If they don't want to fix it or improve it, then so be it. Wilmer Representative Dave Baker said if the governor is unwilling to agree with what Republicans propose, quote, he should tell Minnesotans what other actions he will take to fulfill his promise to take full responsibility for this disaster, unquote. Meanwhile, Republicans proposed major changes to the way the state's IT department does business. I have simply come to the conclusion that the state of Minnesota does not have the necessary expertise to write those very large programs. Hutchinson Senator Scott Newman's bill would allow the state's IT department, Minute, to continue working on projects under contract, but for future projects, state agencies could choose outside vendors if they wish. House Republicans' plan goes further. It would require Minute seek quotes from third-party vendors for new software before doing the programming themselves. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The state's largest food drive is underway, and MN's Tasha Radel has some details. That's right, Scott. The March food campaign is here. Joining me now is Summer Anthony, program manager for Minnesota Food Share. Summer, can you give us some background on the March drive? Absolutely. This is the 36th annual Minnesota Food Share March campaign. Annually, nearly 300 food shops throughout the state of Minnesota come together with community organizations, schools, faith communities, businesses, corporations, and individuals to participate in the largest food and fun drive in the state. Um, and the March campaign, when it began, originally began as a movement of a small group of communities in the metro area to restock food shelves in the spring following that huge surge of donations that comes in during the winter holidays. So food shelves in November through December um, receive loads and loads of donations, but then as the seasons go on, that drops off. So they originally started um, that 36 years ago as a small effort, and um, within a year, there was evident need that this would benefit food shelves throughout the state, and it blew up into a statewide campaign and has been ever since. And, you know, I, I have to ask, um, you know, when, when we think about this, this March food campaign really replenishes those shelves uh, for several months. Is that, is that fair to say? Absolutely. It really varies depending on the food shelf, but overwhelmingly we hear that what comes in during the March campaign 
can sustain a food shelf from anywhere from a few months to some of our smaller food shelves that are in rural Minnesota. Talk about it can sustain their food shelf for nearly six months or more. So it's really an impactful um, event, and it's something that communities have rallied around for a long time, and it just kind of becomes an automatic each year, which is absolutely lovely. And then, too, um, I think that I've learned over the years from covering this story that, um, you know, oftentimes we think of donating to a food shelf, bringing in a, um, you know, bringing in a bunch of items, but actually uh, cash goes a lot farther. Can you explain that to folks? Sure. Cash does go much farther. Um, When you donate a dollar to a food shelf, a food shelf is able to turn that one dollar into four dollars upwards of ten dollars or more. Um, The reason being is that food shelves have access to food banks, so organizations like Second Harvest, Channel One, the food group, larger food banks that can provide them items at a discount. And they also have access to other discounted programs to buy what they need. So they're able to get more for the dollar than I am if I go to the grocery store to pick up items. And then I think even um, just as important, food shelves then are able to purchase the items that their community truly needs. So if they have an influx of donations of cereal, they don't need to purchase cereal, and they're able to use that dollar to purchase what they need, Um, whether that be specific foods to meet dietary needs or cultural needs. Um, And food shelves also are giving out a variety of other products, um, hygiene products, diapers, items like that, that they can't purchase through food banks. So those dollars that are donated are also important for the food shelves to be able to go out and purchase items like that. And let's turn a little bit about, uh, a little bit, I guess, to need. I know since the Great Recession, we've been seeing record number of uh, people and families going through the food shelf. Are we still continuing to see that summer? Yes, unfortunately, the trend is not changing. Um, It looks like last year, will be another year of over 3 million visits to food shelves um, during the year. So I believe that is our seventh year that we will have seen over 3 million visits to food shelves. Um, What we know, and as well as we're able to track it and research around the state, is about one in 10 Minnesota households are food insecure. And so what that means is those households don't have access to adequate food um, or their food access is inconsistent and limited, usually due to a lack of money or having to shift your resources around. So unfortunately, the need, the need isn't going away, um, and we actually see it growing among communities like our senior community. And I also want to point out uh, the, the state's 300-plus food shelves are typically uh, run by a majority of volunteers that put in a lot of time and effort. Is, is that right? Absolutely. Um, a number of food shelves throughout the state of Minnesota are completely run by volunteers. Um, and then some of the larger organizations throughout the state and in the Twin Cities, while they have fantastic staffs to help organize and run, they still really um, rely on the help of volunteers. So in addition to those dollars and those items donated, if communities can get to know their food shelf and donate their time to the food shelf, that is hugely impactful as well. Well, lots of great information, Summer. Was there anything else you wanted to add today that maybe I didn't hit on? It's just 
such a wonderful time of year. It's so great to see thousands of Minnesotans getting together to work toward ending hunger um, and to really um, get to know one another as communities. So it's a fabulous event. Thanks again to my guest, Summer Anthony, with Minnesota Food Share. For more information on the March campaign, you can head to minnesotafoodshare.org. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Researchers at the U of M are leading a unique project they hope will provide a never-before-seen look at closed-door meetings of the Supreme Court throughout history. J.W. Cox talked with Professor Timothy Johnson, a political science and law professor at the U of M, who is the lead research of the SCOTUS Notes project. The reason that we wanted to do this project is because these meetings are so secretive, nobody really knows what goes on in them. But fortunately, former justices, a good number of them, left notes that they took during these meetings in their archives that the public can have access to. And so, along with a colleague from Michigan State University, we decided that we would like to take a look at those notes to see if we could add some uh, additional understanding to how our nation's highest court makes decisions. What can you pull out of these notes that can benefit either decisions that are made or help inform why the decisions were made in the first place? The most interesting aspect of these meetings, I'll reiterate, is that they are private. Nobody besides the nine justices gets to be in them. And, and the key reason the justices give for keeping these meetings private in that way is it allows them to be um, open with their colleagues in a way that they might not if they thought maybe they would have sound bites taken of them or if there would be leaks um, about what was discussed. And so when it's only the nine, with very rare exceptions throughout the court's modern history, there is not leaks that happens from those conference discussions. And so it's the idea of being able to gather some additional knowledge of how the justices speak to one another and how they argue about the issues that will lead them to particular decisions that make these meetings very important. You mentioned the modern history of the court. What time frame are these notes that you're going over spanning? How far back are we going and how recent do they come from? We currently have papers going back to Justice William Douglas joining the bench in 1937, although he didn't generally begin to take notes at conference until later in the 1930s, 1939 really, into the early 1940s. And so we go back into that era, so back between 70 and 80 years. Um, and we actually end right now just after 1994 when Justice Blackman left the bench because that is when his papers end. We've got a few notes from uh, former Chief Justice Rehnquist that span uh, a couple of terms after 1994. But by and large, because the justices will not allow their papers to be public until they leave the bench, and usually ultimately until they die, it is very difficult to get any purchase on recent courts. Now, when you look at uh, what you've already seen so far, how much have you been able to dig into what has already been transcribed? And Do you have any, any interesting finds that maybe you weren't expecting out of this already here in the early stages? You know, we've got a few really interesting finds. I think finding out how the justices ultimately decided about the trimester scheme in Roe versus Wade was a big point of discussion in both of the conferences they held about Roe versus Wade. We know that the justices were very concerned um, in the Bakke decision, which is the court's first famous affirmative action decision. They were very concerned 
with how Congress would react, um, as well as possibly how state legislatures would react. And that sort of case tells us what we were hoping these conference notes might tell us, and that is that the justices actually are thinking beyond the walls of their ivory tower when they're making these decisions, and they're very open and honest with one another that they want to make sure that they are not straying too far from what other branches of government are thinking about a particular issue. You can probably pull a whole lot more out of some of these notes, depending on what they're talking about, than me or the average person. How do you kind of distill that to where it makes an impact for people that don't have an expansive knowledge of the actual rules of law side of things that they might be discussing? Certainly, as academics, we often speak only to the academic world. And the intent of, of my co-investigator at Michigan State University, Professor Ryan Black, our intent is to actually speak very broadly beyond the walls of academia. And what we really hope we can do beyond deriving general explanations for the court's behavior and the individual justice's behavior, we really want to be able to tell a story about our nation's highest court and open it up in a way that the public has not had it opened up to them really forever. And so this is going to be about not only the general explanations, but about storytelling and anecdotal accounts as well, such as in the Roe decision or the Bakke decision. And I think that we can effectively do that without talking in, in legalese to do so. How can the public get involved in what, the, what you're trying to do with this project? So we want as many people to get involved as possible. Um, uh, that is why crowdsourcing is such an amazing uh, avenue for gathering data. And so anyone who is interested can simply go to our website, SCOTUS, S-C-O-T-U-S, notes, N-O-T-E-S, but it's all one word, scotusnotes.org. And you just need to sign up for an account, which just asks for an email and user, or a, a username, email, and password. And then you can begin transcribing notes for us. And the great thing about the website and the platform we use um, through Zooniverse, which is a group that is a collaboration between the University of Minnesota, Oxford University, and the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, is that they have almost a decade or just over a decade of experience working in the crowdsourcing area. Zooniverse currently has on its website 1.7 million people signed up as volunteers worldwide to do these sorts of projects for academics. We just hope that people will be really interested and, and that they will uh, come join the team. One of the best parts about joining the team or having more people on the team for us is a key to Zooniverse is direct interaction with the research team. And so there's a great function on the website where if you've got questions, you can ask them. And Professor Black and I will respond, and the two of us love responding quite quickly to help people get answers to their questions. So there really is a great back and forth between the, the volunteers and the research team. Johnson says there's already been a tremendous response from volunteer transcribers, and he hopes to have all of the 50,000 available pages of notes transcribed sometime this summer. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Believe it or not, the Gopher football team began spring practice this week on the U of M campus. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with head coach P.J. Fleck. 
even though there's snow on the ground, it doesn't mean uh, you can't play some football here. How exciting is it? Uh, year two now in terms of on-the-field work. You know, we're very excited with our Athletes Village being built and our brand-new indoor facility. We're excited to go in there. As I look out, both of us look out, right? the practice fields are covered in snow, right, in the beautiful early March here in, in Minnesota. But really, I'm excited for spring ball because, you know, year one, it was just being able to just to get to know your team, uh, know who they are, identify them, not call them the wrong names um, in terms of knowing who they are. It was really learning everything that we do. Year two, once you hit spring ball and winter conditioning, they're actually doing the culture. And you, it's not as much learning it anymore. It's that it's starting to learn how to master that. From a personal standpoint, just I would think starting year two, just simple daily things to the comfort level of you. I mean, literally like driving in town, knowing restaurants to go to. I mean, from that standpoint, is it is it a lot easier a year later now? Oh, it's, I think it's a lot easier. You know, we've really kind of embedded ourselves in the Minnesota culture. And I know my wife, Heather, and our children love living here. And uh, the issue we have is every time we go to a darn mall, uh, our four kids think there should be roller coasters in the middle of it. Uh, if we don't happen to go to the Mall of America, but we really enjoy the community, really enjoyed our state. I know we're going to experience a lot more here in the summer. We're excited. Heather and I and the kids are going to go up north and, and spend some time uh, up north, three, four hours north at, at, at a cabin. And, and so we're really excited about those things. But when you're talking about in-house in our program, I mean, the great thing is we have a brand new facility, but we're also learning how to use our facility. So last year it was year one where you're just kind of getting to know everything in the building. Then you switch buildings in year two, which really is year one of a new building. Uh, but it's, it's been fantastic. I mean, we've had a ton of recruiting in, in the Athletes Village, and, and this place is second to none. And you can hear the recruits say that, and even our players, how much they appreciate being in here. It's fun to hear those things. All right, let's talk football. What uh, are some general things you'd like to accomplish here in the spring session? Well, there's a lot of battles that we have to be able to see. I think, you know, anytime we get into year two, year two is where you finally have some depth. You know, there's a lot of transition between year one and two. A lot of players leave the program, whether they're seniors. There's a lot of attrition that happens naturally just because of different cultures and people fitting different places uh, and different rules and expectations. Uh, but when you get into year two, the biggest thing is now, you know, we are going to do our culture. And I think that's one thing our players are really excited about. You can see the growth in our football team. There's a lot of competitions. Uh, quarterback, obviously, is one of them. Last year, we thought if we thought we were young and inexperienced last year at quarterback, this year is going to make that look like we were experienced because we don't have any experience. But that's the fun of it. You know, this is part of that rebuild at a lot of positions, and, and that's what we're doing. So the quarterback battle, there's going to be some running back issues that we're going to talk about here a little bit later on, um, some battles that we have to look at for some young guys bringing some depth on. The offensive line, how we're going to be able to shuffle that. We've got some, you know, we brought seven new incomers in that will, four of them will join us in June, three of them are already here, and, and uh, two of them are just uh, monsters of men that you'll be able to hear about uh, as we go through spring. And then the D-line, there's going to be a lot of guys that play, but where are they going to play? So we have depth. It's just not exactly where you want to be in that competitive depth with this really year three, but year two, we finally have some pieces to work with. We don't have four O-linemen going into the, uh, in the spring. We have, I think, 12 or 13, so we can actually play the game and not simulate it. You mentioned the quarterback, so I've got to ask you in terms of that, because that's the high-profile spot. People will be wondering about it. Uh, kind of what would you like to see happen in the spring here as your guys compete for that spot, and who, who do you foresee being in that mix? Yeah, you'd like to be able to whittle down the four that are competing for the job, in my opinion, that have the ability to possibly play in the fall. Um, you know, I'd like to be able to whittle that down to three. You know, you'd like to be able to do that. To at least you know you have the reps, how you're going to divvy those up in the fall camp. 
But again, we're in a position where even, you know, Vic Veramontes, I have not seen him throw one football yet except for his film that we, we, we watched. Um, Tanner Morgan had a tremendous year in terms of on the scout team and being a red shirt. Seth Green is one of the most athletic players we have on this football team. Is he the best quarterback? I don't know. Um, but that is an, a decision we have to look at, too. I mean, is Seth Green going to be the starting quarterback? Can Seth Green help us other positions while he's playing quarterback? Can he do those things? So, uh, And then, you know, when you look at Zach Anikstead, who came in as, as a true freshman, who gave up multiple scholarship offers to be here as a preferred walk-on, and uh, I'm really proud of him, too. So, you know, it's one of those things where we've got the reps divvied up the way we need to be able to do it. Everybody's going to get a fair opportunity, at least at the beginning. And then as we go through spring, the reps, reps will be divvied up depending on who's playing better and who's doing the best things but it's really exciting but the fun thing about it it's it, it's the best of times and the worst of times because there is absolutely zero experience but to me that's the fun part of it you get to build that from ground up uh, and that's the exciting part as we continue to go on the future go for football last one for you i know you like to engage with the community you're going to have some open practices that you want i know want to see uh, fans come out and, and engage with the team yeah i really want our, our fans to come out and experience this team there's there's so many fun people on this team uh, I'm not saying there wasn't any last year. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I've gotten to know this team over a course of a year. We put a ton of additions to this football team already in the spring and even more coming in June. But uh, I think our team has changed a lot uh, in their personality, in their serving, in their giving, in terms of just them, in terms of belief in our culture. And I think that shines through what, what type of people we have. I think our leadership's grown tremendously. And I can't wait for our fans to get around this new 2018 football team. And, uh, you know, it's kind of fun. You know, there's two seasons. There's, there's football season and spring football season. So we're excited about the, uh, the first part of that. And uh, we can't wait to see all of our fans out of practices. That's P.J. Fleck and MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. By the way, the annual spring game is set for April 14th at TCF Bank Stadium. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.